Good morning. This is Tommy Ray, and we're in episode 30 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. Today is Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful day of appreciation of all we enjoy in this country. We have so much to be thankful for, including access to pure, clean water. Most importantly, we are fortunate to live in this beautiful country. I have said it before, and I will continue to say it. We are a large, industrious, diverse, friendly nation. I continue to be amazed at how nice people are to each other. If you are friendly and nice to others, they will be friendly and nice back to you. I was lucky to travel throughout our country looking for business opportunities for my client, a very large earth-moving contractor. I met lots of engineers, government employees, developers, entrepreneurs, attorneys, all kinds of people in different kinds of businesses or jobs. My water activities in Colorado led me to meet and work with many farmers. They work hard also and provide the bounty we enjoy every day. And everyone I have met, from our garbage collector to my water attorney, seem to enjoy their work. If they don't, they can search for other opportunities and better pay. That doesn't happen throughout the rest of the world. God bless America. Come to think about it, this podcast is more work than I anticipated, but I love it, and I want to share what limited knowledge I have on the water industry. Listeners want to know more about water, and there is much to know. The daily newspapers often discuss water because water impacts us all. There were three articles in the Denver Post just within this past week, each explaining some aspect of water or questioning decisions on water. That's great. I wanted to share summaries of those articles. The first was in last Sunday's paper. It was titled, A Better Way to Distribute Colorado River Water. Daniel McCool, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Utah, wrote the article. Part of his research focuses on water resources. His article focused on the Colorado River Compact and his thoughts on how to improve it. It particularly caught my attention because I have long felt that our water laws are outdated and need to be improved. He feels the same way about the Colorado River Compact. Some of his comments are quoted directly here. Because of climate change and rapid development, there is now an enormous gap between the amount of water the compact allocates to parties and the amount that is actually in the river. With users facing unprecedented water shortages, the compact is hopelessly inadequate to deal with current and future realities. Professor McCool has studied water resources development for 35 years and written extensively about Native American water rights and the future of America's rivers. He sees three fundamental eras that now plague efforts to develop a new vision for the region served by the Colorado River. He thinks the most productive way forward is for states and tribes 
to negotiate a new agreement that reflects 21st century realities. The original compact commissioners made two fatal blunders when they allocated water in 1922. First, they appraised the river's volume based on inaccurate data that wildly overestimated it. Actual annual historic flows were far below what was needed to satisfy the dictates of the compact. There is evidence that the commissioners did this purposefully. Reaching an agreement was easier if there was more water to go around. This strategy guaranteed that the compact would allocate more water than was actually in the river, a situation now referred to as the structural deficit. Second, the compact allocated water in fixed amounts rather than percentages of the river's actual flow. That approach would be viable if the river flow were constant and the agreement were based on sound science. But the Colorado's flow is highly variable. The compact divided the river artificially into an upper basin. We've discussed that. Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and a lower basin, Arizona, Nevada, and California, and allocated 7.5 million acre-feet of water to each basin. In 1944, a treaty allocated an additional 1.5 million acre-feet to Mexico for a total of 16.5 million acre-feet. However, actual flow has typically been below that amount. River volume at the time of the compact was about 18 million acre-feet a year, but the 20th century average was closer to 14.8 million acre-feet. And then things got much worse. In the past 20 years, climate change has further reduced the Colorado's volume. A mega drought, now in its 21st year, has reduced flows by nearly 20%, and studies predict that it will fall 20 to 35% or more by mid-century. In late August 2021, Lake Mead, the nation's largest reservoir, was just 35% full. Lake Powell, the second largest U.S. reservoir, was less than 30% full. This forced the Bureau of Reclamation to declare an official shortage, which will force Arizona, Nevada, and Mexico to make significant cuts in water use. In short, the original fixed allocations are no longer anchored in reality. Professor McCool thinks a much better approach would be to allocate water among the states and tribes in percentages based on a five-year rolling average that would change as the river's flow changes. Without such a shift, the compact will merely perpetuate a hydrological fallacy that leads water users to claim water that does not exist. Beyond those eras, the compact also rests on a fundamental injustice. The 30 tribal nations in the Colorado River Basin are the river's original users, and their reservations encompass huge swaths of land. But they were completely left out of the 1922 allocations. Compact commissioners, whose views reflected the overt racism of that era, 
assumed native peoples did not deserve their own allocation. Tribes have gone to court to claim a share of the Colorado's water and have won significant victories. They now have rights to over 2 million acre-feet of water in the lower basin and 1.1 million acre-feet in the upper basin. And 12 tribes have unresolved claims that could total up to 405,000 acre-feet more. Currently, however, tribes are not drawing all of their water because they don't have the pipelines and other infrastructure that they need to divert and use it. This allows non-Indian communities downstream to use the surplus water without payment in most cases. Professor McCool believes a new compact should include tribes as equal partners with states and give them meaningful and significant roles in all future negotiations and policymaking in the basin. The compact states are now renegotiating interim river management guidelines that were first adopted in 2007. This process must be completed by 2026 when that agreement expires. These discussions may be an excellent opportunity to discard the compact's unworkable provisions and negotiate a new agreement that responds to the unprecedented challenges now facing the Southwest. An agreement based on egregiously erroneous data in an age when people drove Model T cars, cannot possibly serve as the foundation for a dramatically different future. In Professor McCool's view, the 1922 Compact is now an albatross that can only inhibit innovation. Eliminating fixed water rights to water that doesn't actually exist could spur members to negotiate a new science-based agreement that is fairer, more inclusive, and more efficient and sustainable. Wow, I thought that was a great article with a bold assertion. Through negotiations, let's update the Colorado River Compact to reflect today's issues. So that was the first article. The second article was about what else might be coming? The yuck factor. Reporters from the Denver Post last Friday reported that some cities are considering sterilization of wastewater from toilets, sinks, and factories and piping it back into homes and businesses as tap water in a way to extend their water supplies. In the Los Angeles area, plans to recycle wastewater for drinking are moving along. Just two decades ago, similar efforts in the city sparked such a backlash that they had to be abandoned. The practice, which must meet federal drinking water standards, has been adopted in several places around the country, including nearby Orange County. The shifting attitudes around a concept once dismissively dubbed toilet to tap come as dry regions scramble for ways to increase water supplies as their populations boom 
and climate change intensifies droughts. There are still only about two dozen communities in the U.S. using some form of recycled water for drinking, but that number is projected to more than double in the next 15 years, according to Water Reuse, a group that helps cities adopt such conservation practices. In most places that do it, the sterilized water is mixed back into a lake, river, or other natural source before being reused, a step that helps make the idea of drinking treated sewage go down easier for some. This sounds exactly like what Aurora did by picking up its sewage effluent 10 miles downstream from the Metropolitan Sewage Treatment Plant to serve the Prairie Waters Project. The Southern California Project would be the nation's largest wastewater recycling program, producing enough water to supply 500,000 homes, according to the Metropolitan Water District, which serves 19 million people in Los Angeles and surrounding counties. In Colorado, more than two dozen facilities already recycle water for non-drinking purposes, which is more affordable than cleaning it for drinking. But growing populations mean cities could need to pull additional supply from the Colorado River, which is strained from overuse. The recycling process typically entails disinfecting wastewater with ozone gas or ultraviolet light to remove viruses and bacteria, then filtering it through membranes with microscopic pores to remove solids and trace contaminants. Not all water can be recycled locally. Often, Western communities are required to send treated wastewater back to its source so that it eventually can be used by other places that depend on that same body of water. You have to put the water back into the river because it's not yours. As a result, much of the country already consumes water that's been recycled to some degree, simply by living downstream from others. It's why drinking water undergoes stringent sterilization even when it's pulled from a river or lake that looks clean. We've talked about that in previous episodes. It has been happening a long time. In Colorado, we have been fortunate to be at the very top of the watershed, and our raw sources are comparatively clean to most of the rest of the country. Poor New Orleans. The main advantage of recycling sewage treatment is that it's a water supply that's right in the backyard of all cities. It's coming, folks. And the third article also was in last Friday's Denver Post, was a commentary that although Denver Water's gross reservoir expansion is permitted now, maybe that dam expansion is foolhardy in a time of drought. Something to think about. Claire Levy, Marta Lochman, and Matt Jones argue that since Colorado River flows, which are used to fill gross, are declining precipitously because of climate change and long-term drought, maybe an expanded gross will not fill. Denver water ratepayers 
should be asking questions along these lines. They think the environmental impacts from this project will occur throughout the Colorado River Basin at a time when increased heat and decreased precipitation makes the future of the Colorado River uncertain. They think there has not been enough public discussion about the enlargement. The Colorado River is in severe distress because of a 20-year drought caused by higher temperatures induced by climate change. More intelligent people than me have differing ideas as to how best to maintain our water supplies. Of course, we also need to grow our supplies if we're going to meet the demands of the coming tsunami of population growth. How are we going to do that? I like seeing all these different viewpoints. My first thoughts about this episode were to give you some of my personal viewpoints and life philosophy, and I want to do that in future episodes. Thanksgiving always makes me reflect on how lucky we are. This is the greatest country on earth and will continue to be so. We just need to trust in ourselves and do our own thinking. I want you to think about how lucky we are to have good, clean water every day. Our water supply in the West is like the canary in the coal mine. It's the first indication that we have a problem serving growth, which we know is coming. Let's hope the canary keeps singing. There are lots of good people out there trying to keep the canary in good health. Many more issues to discuss, but we have to stop for now. Next time, we'll talk about forest fires and their impact on our water. So keep listening. And speaking of listening, let's go listen to my favorite mountain stream. See you next time.